Hello, and welcome to another instalment of The Weird Chronicles. Each episode, we bring you tales of action and adventure from Malifaux and the other side. On today's programme, we have the conclusion of the Assassin's Ball. A group of skilled assassins has gathered at a lavish ball with the intention of killing Secretary Lucius Mattison. But in Malifaux, even the best laid plans often go awry. I hope you enjoy the conclusion of this tale. Ten bells had struck, and still the Russian had not taken his shot, although Alvarez could not understand why. He had followed the Governor-General's secretary for hours now, and had not seen any cause for concern. If there were personal guards here, they were all waiting outside with the carriage. Lucius had moved from one small cluster of aristocrats to the next, and submerged himself in whatever conversation was being fielded at the time. This had been going on since he left the dance floor, and Alvarez would have put money on him having spoken to everyone of influence by now. But no, there was always another archduke, another countess, another company director, another council member. They seemed to be coming out of the woodwork. At first it had disturbed him to see how many strands there were to the secretary's social web, and how warmly he was greeted by them. He had seen Burke around the peripheral of the floor a number of times, and the bitter-looking man was ever standing alone, or leaning close and conspiring with a worried-looking guild official or fellow minister. Alvarez disliked people as a rule, but even he could see the merit in having social skills when loyalty and favour were such powerful tools at these giddy heights. After a while, though, the endless posturing and anecdotes began to bore him. He reasoned that Kudryashov had been given ample time to take his shot. He was tired of waiting. He moved himself to a quieter corner of the ballroom, away from the knots of laughter and jubilation and the rustling vortex of the dance floor. There were any number of silk-cushioned seats along the tapestry wall. Then he slumped into one, feigning a mixture of drunkenness and fatigue. With a familiar sense of dislocation, he slid out of his body. The ballroom looked much the same, although the colours and sounds were noticeably more anemic, like a faded watercolour portrait. He looked back at his corporeal self, still slumped and comatose in the chair. He looked asleep, which was more or less the truth. Bleached and slightly fuzzy figures stood around him, making sounds like whale song. The dance floor was a kaleidoscope of pastels and twisting limbs, more like a swirling cloud of coloured gas than a collection of individuals. He drifted past them, invisible, intangible. Lucius was much where he had last seen him, sandwiched between two young blonde women, each vying to thrust more pale cleavage into the secretary's view than the other. An older gentleman in a European military uniform stood with them, his alcohol-purpled face split in a wide grin at something the secretary had just said. A ribald jest, perhaps. Whatever it was, the two girls hid their giggles behind lace fans and batted their eyelids frantically. Alvarez drifted closer, floating through the old warhorse, and tasted rich fortified wine and port. The old boy must have been doing a power of drinking for his incorporeal form to pick that up. He was mere feet from Lucius now, 
close enough to see the powder on his wig and the embroidered lace trim of his spotless gloves. He reached out a pale, translucent hand towards the secretary's chest. This was his talent. This was why he could demand three times the coin Burke had paid his compatriots. The others were skilled and stealthy, yes, but he was completely undetectable. He would reach into Lucius's chest and squeeze his heart, killing the man stone dead right here in front of a hundred witnesses, and not one of them would have the slightest idea what had really happened. His fingers were inches from the embroidered purple silk of Lucius's coat, when the hairs on the back of his neck prickled. He was being watched. An absurd thought, that he could feel someone's gaze on him as surely as a man feels the heat of the sun against his skin. There was a woman standing a dozen paces away, staring at him, staring right at him. He had seen her a dozen times over the course of the evening, nibbling at sweetmeats, conversing with guests. Her only distinction was the way her copper-coloured hair had been scraped back from her temples and scalp into a huge cone, making her skull appear all the more stark and bulbous. Not a complimentary look, he felt, and worsened by her deep eye sockets. Now that he thought about it, she had lingered in Lucius's vicinity for the latter half of the evening, never close enough to be included in his conversations, but never very far away either. And she could see him. She could see his incorporeal form floating a hand's breadth from the secretary. She smiled at him, flashing small and uneven grey teeth. He saw her lips moving, and although there was no sound, he could make out the words easily enough. Naughty, naughty. He watched with sudden alarm as her sunken eyes slid to her right, back to where his body was slouched against the tapestry wall. There was a slight, balding waiter standing at his body's shoulder, a tray of drinks balanced flawlessly in one hand and an expectant look on his face. The pale, scarled woman nodded once. Alvarez was already moving, but not fast enough. Something gleamed in the little man's hand. He saw, rather than felt, his body twitch, and then blood swelled through his white shirt and the jacket he had bought in London. He opened his mouth to shriek, but all that came from him was a miles-distant keening, like wind knifing through a derelict house. The ballroom swirled and blackened, and then there was nothing. The minister's teeth were grinding themselves into stubs. His head was giddy from the wine he had been supping to wet his parched throat, and his stomach squirmed anxiously like an imprisoned animal. It was all going wrong. He had seen Bolivia vanish into a side room and had concluded that her nerve had failed her. She had always been too boastful for his taste, compensating for some inner doubt, and now he saw her true metal. He hadn't been concerned about the money he'd paid her, reasoning that there would be plenty of time to get it back when he was secretary. By ten bells, he was no longer feeling so confident. Kudryashov had not fired, and he had eventually been driven to find Fissa and sent him up to the balcony floor to hunt for the absent Russian. The clerk had soon returned, looking positively stricken, and Burke had begun to understand. While the ballroom's huge brass timepiece ticked out each minute that Alvarez sat inert, 
and Lucius persisted in not dying. His suspicion congealed into certainty. They had been foiled. He did not understand quite how, but the secretary had outmaneuvered him. His three assassins were either dead or incapacitated, and Lucius had the nerve to continue the evening's activities as though nothing had happened. But that was just it, he thought bitterly. Nothing had happened. Humiliated and boiling with rage, Burke stood alone near the midsummer staircase while servants slid to and fro, bringing heavy overcoats and furs to guard the homeward bound against the evening's chill. Fisser appeared, already clad in coat and hat. He paused at Burke's elbow, a damned expression on his narrow face. I, he stammered. Go home, Fisser, was all Burke had the will to say. The frail clerk snapped his mouth shut and walked out to the street with all the enthusiasm of a man on his way to the gallows. Burke lifted his wine glass and gulped the contents angrily. He'd had several glasses too many already, but at this late stage it appeared his getting drunk was of no consequence whatsoever. His plan was over. Someone had sold him out. And he had a good idea who. Tomorrow he would have Doherty dragged to Guild headquarters by his thumbs. He'd have the truth from him, one slice at a time if necessary. That bucket of lard was the only one who... Lucius was walking towards him. The secretary had emerged from the ballroom and was clicking across the marble expanse of the hallway, his blank golden mask showing neither welcome nor warning. Burke stiffened his shoulders, trying to blink the alcohol fog from his eyes. Good evening, Minister, Lucius said as he drew up. A successful evening, wouldn't you say? Like everything else about the governor's secretary, his voice was cultured and luxuriant. The shadows behind the mask were too deep to see any glint of life. It was like conversing with a mannequin. Secretary, Burke said by way of sullen reply. His words sounded a touch slurred. Am I really that drunk? The mask angled just faintly to the side, and Burke heard a slow inhalation. The 59, Lucius said. An excellent vintage. I approve. Burke was lost for a moment, and then it dawned on him. The wine that was churning his stomach and poaching his brain. It was a Spanish vintage Lucius had sent to Lady Tannery, the one he had snorted at the night before. The secretary had smelled it on his breath. He felt overpowering hatred for the man bubbling up in his throat. I hadn't noticed, he said. No matter, dismissed Lucius. It has been quite an evening. Most enthusiastic dancing, certainly. I had a near miss myself at one point. Burke swallowed involuntarily. Still, the secretary continued, bound to happen when one is in sole attendance. My entourage was most upset when they heard of my intention to spend the evening without them. They were quite convinced that some villain would take a pot shot at me. An absurd notion, of course. Burke's heart was stuttering. Oh, absurd, he managed. Just so. Lucius watched him inscrutably for a moment before continuing. However, I must say that liberation agrees with me. I feel revitalized. 
on a spiritual level, one might say, and my heart beats all the stronger for it. Burke didn't utter a word. He knows, with all his panicking brain could manage. A servant settled a thick cape around the secretary's shoulders and handed him his cane. Well, a good evening to you, Minister. I'm sure that we shall talk again very soon. The mask tipped in farewell, and Lucius turned on his heel, striding out through the entrance hall where the tiny women in Cheongsams were bowing to all the departing guests. Burke knew that he would not survive the night if he allowed Lucius to leave. The secretary had known his plan, and had set his own people in motion. It was the only explanation for how he could have countered Burke's assassins so effectively. Nothing would happen while he stood here in plain view of the dwindling socialites, but by morning he would be just another pale corpse, face down in the mud. If he was lucky. Lucius had to die, and he had to die right now. Lurching into action, Burke snatched up a silver knife from the table at his back and rushed through the entrance hall. He could see Lucius just entering the street, illuminated by the paper lanterns hanging from Tannery Hall's iron railings. The curb and a waiting carriage lay a dozen strides ahead, with the driver standing attentively at its open door. It had to be now. Accelerating to a shambolic run, Burke charged through the Knotwood doorway, knocking a tiny Oriental woman to her knees, shoving past a burly man in a bowler hat with a coat over his arm, and out to the slab sidewalk. Part of him screamed at this rash madness, but a larger, pragmatic part of him understood that the pieces were still in place. If Lucius died now, he could still manoeuvre himself into the void. And once he donned that gold mask, all manner of sins could be washed beyond recall. He raced forward, raising the silver knife to bury it in the secretary's back. Despite the rapid clatter of his shoes on the slabs, Lucius had not even deigned to turn around. A final arrogance. That suited Burke just fine. He registered a momentary flash from a rooftop across the street, and he was immediately struck in the chest by an invisible hammer. He flew backwards, as though kicked by a horse, and crashed into the iron railings. The stolen knife wickered through the air and vanished somewhere in the dark. Up among the slates and crooked chimneys, the sniper lowered his rifle and began unscrewing its sound suppressor. As Burke's corpse slid into a pile at the foot of the railings, the burly man in the bowler hat threw his coat over the body, masking the minister's contorted face and bloody shirt. A cluster of giggling ladies spilled from the hall, just as the man dug a hand into his pocket and scattered a few coins on the slab at the corpse's feet. Poor bugger, he grunted to the passing ladies as he touched the brim of his hat. Probably sleeps out in all weathers. Get yourself a tot of rum on me, mate. The women hurried past, giving the supposed vagrant a wide berth. Lucius nodded to the waiting carriage driver and stepped up into the vehicle. The driver closed the door and climbed up onto the bench and was joined a moment later by Bowler Hat, Son's coat. The carriage jolted forward with a crack of the reins, leaving Tannery Hall and its unfortunate vagrant behind. 
Lucia sat in comfortable silence for some minutes, while the carriage rattled and rocked its way through the dark Malifaux streets. He seemed quite oblivious to the wheezing at his side. Eventually he turned to acknowledge the other passenger. A most enjoyable evening, he said. Doherty nodded, although he looked preoccupied and abnormally ruddy-faced, which in his case meant puce. I am glad that I was able to provide some small service, he said. His voice was devoid of its previous booming confidence. Indeed, your forecast of Minister Burke's plan proved to be quite accurate. The bloated man looked suitably gratified, but this expression soon collapsed into a grimace, as though something pained him greatly. Are you well, Mr. Doherty? There is nothing, Secretary, the aristocrat admonished. Merely some digestive trouble. I am relieved. This seemed to be the end of the conversation, but after several clearings of his throat and swabbing his wet brow with a kerchief, Doherty soldiered on breathlessly. I wonder, Secretary, if this might be a good time to broach the subject of the conclusion to our arrangement. He began, with Minister Burke's assassination attempt safely averted. I thought that we might now be free to discuss any residual obligations of our agreement. Ah, yes, Lucia said, the mask turning to regard the fat man impassively. The reward for your treachery. Doherty attempted a laugh, but it turned into a syrupy cough and his entire bulk shivered with evident pain. Strongly phrased, Secretary, but I'm sure you'll agree that I was acting in your best interests. Oh, I doubt that very much. Lucius was twirling the head of his cane with long, nimble fingers. I suspect your concern has yet to venture beyond the generous bounds of your own body. If they had, you may have better understood the qualities that I deem most important in a business associate. The heavy aristocrat's breathing had become noticeably more laboured, though it was unclear whether through anxiety or increasing infirmity. I cannot abide treachery, Lucius was saying. It plays its part, of course, but I have never found the flavour palatable. That is why Mr. Fisser is still a clerk of the Guild, despite his rather poor choice in leadership. He remained loyal to his superior in the face of certain defeat, and has undoubtedly set his shoulders against whatever retribution he expects to be delivered on the morrow. Such a man may yet prove useful because I know he has dependability. Doherty was either having trouble absorbing this, or was asphyxiating. In either case, he had at least become quiet. Even Minister Burke was loyal to his cause, Lucius said, though it was to his ultimate ruin. There would have been a place in the Guild for his concision and drive, had he not acted so rashly. He did not meet the end I would have wished for him. He... He tried to have you killed, gurgled Doherty. He displayed courage and ambition, Lucius retorted. He gambled everything and only lacked the clarity to see that he had bet against the house. The gold mask watched Doherty's trembling face. And the house always wins, Mr. Doherty. Helped, wheezed the aristocrat, 
his face a tumult of alarm and confusion. One fat finger was trying to worm between the folds of his chins and his starched collar. Helped yourself, you mean. You played one side against the other for personal gain, Mr. Doherty. Minister Burke died trying to remove me from office because he felt he was the worthier man. However misguided that judgment might have been, his intent was to better the guild and by proxy all of Malifaux. It looked like Doherty was trying to swallow a baseball. His face had gone from puce to violet. And you? Lucius leaned back in his seat and tapped the roof of the carriage with his cane. The vehicle immediately slowed and stopped. You squandered a principled man's life and had the temerity to ask me for a reward. The aristocrat was shivering with pain now, his shirt soaking through with sweat. That afternoon when you came to my office to betray your fellow conspirators, Lucius said as the carriage door opened and Bowler Hat appeared, do you recall the Napoleonic brandy in the crystal decanter that was offered after our discussion, that you imbibed so greedily, and even, I venture, went so far as to fill your hip flask with when my back was turned? Doherty's widening eyes were testament that he did indeed remember, even as Bowler Hat took hold of his arm. The poison is quite slow acting, but very thorough. Lucius explained. I killed you two days ago, the moment you betrayed your friends. I believe that is all the reward you deserve. Eyes still goggling, the choking Doherty was dragged out into the dark. The carriage rumbled and clattered along the darkened street, while watchful shadows kept pace on the rooftops above. Inside, Lucius settled further into the soft leather, readjusting the lay of his cape across his shoulders and resting his cane across his knees. After a moment, he began to hum a waltz. That's it for another episode of The Weird Chronicles. Join us next time for more tales of action and adventure. <laughs>